2: What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello.
3: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm Diblinga Chakraborty. And today's subject is a warrior and a queen. Her name is Nzinga of Ndongo and Matamba. And even though she's considered one of the best documented rulers of her era in Africa, probably many of you, like us, hadn't ever heard of her before. I mean, had you heard of her? I had not. No, and I first heard of her on a website for historical Halloween costumes. So that's not really... um, I don't know, where you'd expect to... The best
4: resource for your research. I'm skeptical now, Sarah. (laughs) It's not
3: where you'd expect (laughs) to first hear about a, a historical figure like this. But she was there tucked in with these more familiar names, people like Queen Victoria, Cleopatra, people who you might actually go out and see somebody dressed as them for Halloween. But she's a pretty amazing ruler, and not just because she would throw a sword around her neck and enter battle well into her 60s. She's most impressive for her ability to maintain her independence despite infighting, despite battling colonial powers, and despite a strong prejudice among her own people against women rulers. Plus, she had style. She had kind of some swagger I'd say. She had a very interesting style. In fact the best story about her
4: has the still uncrowned Nzinga acting as her brother the king's emissary to Portuguese colonists. So when she saw the Portuguese governor hadn't provided her with a chair because he was intending to humble her and have her sit on a mat she ordered her attendant down on hands and knees and carried out negotiations sitting on her back.
3: So that's a power play, for sure. It certainly embarrassed the Portuguese. It made an impression on all of those who who witnessed it. But the Women in World History Encyclopedia describes Nzinga as a proto-nationalist leader. They describe her as wily and intelligent. I'd say the chair stunt proves that. And one who, quote, maintained her power by adopting contradictory strategies, which ultimately succeeded. And I really think contradictory, once you hear about this lady, is a super understatement because Nzinga was a ruler willing to embrace, for instance, Catholicism and then go to ritual cannibalism from that and then back to Catholicism again, all to keep power. She would broker a slave trading agreement with the Portuguese, then announce her kingdom as a safe haven for escapees all over Africa. You know, these real dramatic changes in politics, in order to, to hold on to, to her power. Yeah, and those
4: are just a couple examples. And it really worked. The style of hers really worked. She ruled for 40 years and she established a kingdom that avoided colonization for about 250 years after her death. But first, before we go into all of that, how did she get her start? And what was she up against? So we're going to take a little bit of a look at her background to begin with. And to look at her background, we have to also look at the background on the situation at the time. The Portuguese had arrived in Africa in the late 1400s. They wanted slaves for their colony in Brazil, but they didn't want the competition of the English and French in Northeast Africa. So they went south to what is today Congo and Angola, When they reached Angola by the early 1500s, they found a collection of African kingdoms ruled by aristocratic families that would frequently turn over the kingship, so they'd flip it between noble families. So any designated king was really only in power temporarily before the next family captured the crown.
3: It reminds me a little bit of elected officials, but also just sort of coup after coup after coup. Um, Nobody would really count on passing on the kingship to his son. But one of the more important kingdoms in this area was Ndongo, which was formed by the Mbundu people in the late 15th century. And the Mbundu had been threatened by the kingdom of Congo to the north, and eventually, of course, also by the Portuguese. And this had really forced them to tighten up their leadership structure from what you just described, Dublina, and make it more about heredity and center power and government in the Ndongo kingdom, which would be ruled by a king called Ngola. Uh and just because it sort of helps me understand this and put it into more context, it's that word, ngola, um, that drove the Portuguese to start calling the whole area Angola. Uh kind of strange since that word just means king. It's you'd think that maybe the whole area would end up being called Ndongo. That's not how it went down. So this noble-run
4: system was also put to the side in favor of a royal slave-run state, the slaves taking high positions in the military or government, even collecting taxes, kind of like the Janissaries.
3: Yeah, so not how you'd normally think of slaves, disenfranchised. Uh, These were people who, who had more power and presumably could be relied on a little more than the infighting nobles. So at first, the Portuguese treated Ndongo and other kingdoms in the area as trading partners, albeit kind of trading partners with a gun to their head. Basically, supply of slaves will be your trading partners. If you don't, well, then your own people will be enslaved. Maybe even you, the nobles, or you, the
4: rulers. So not much of a choice there. But once they established a slave trading base at Luanda Island, they got even more aggressive. The Portuguese. The Portuguese did, right. Old trading partners suddenly became enemies at that point. After a few decades of fighting, Things were at a semi stalemate until about 1612 to 1622 when the Portuguese brought in the Mbangala warriors as mercenaries. And the Mbangala practiced ritual cannibalism, they enslaved boys for troops, they killed kids born in their camps, and they had democratically elected leaders. I
3: mean, except for that last part, they're pretty scary. They were really, really terrifying, and with Mbangala help, the Portuguese did manage to finally bring Ndongo, that camp- kingdom to its knees, and the king, Mbandi, had to flee his own country. Okay, so this is where Our Lady Nzinga finally comes in. So with King Mbande on the lamb he sent his sister, who is Nzinga, as an emissary to the Portuguese in about 1621 or 1622. And She was there for pretty serious negotiations, not only to try to patch things over with the Portuguese, you know, try to get it so her brother could return to his kingdom, but to stave off two African competitors to the Ndongo throne as well. But despite, you know, those, like, really serious needs of hers, she did not come begging to the Portuguese at all. She, of course, pulled off that servant chair stunt that Dublina described in the beginning, something that was so absolutely shocking to those present that one of them, Giovanni Antonio Cavazzi, depicted it in this really fantastic illustration. You can look this one up, and I think just the expressions on everybody's face is really great. Nzinga looks quite comfy and on her human chair the non-weight-bearing attendants look pretty impressed with their not their queen at this point but a representative of their king some of them are almost smirking a little bit the governor looks super awkward his legs are all splayed out while he's sitting on his traditional chair and meanwhile the servant on the ground looks solid not like she's suffering under, under the weight or anything it's a great picture So what happened
4: after that little snapshot that we see? Well, once seated, Nzinga went to work. Portuguese Governor Correa de Souza demanded that all Portuguese war prisoners be released. She demanded that all Mbundu people be returned from slavery in Brazil in exchange. So they were kind of at... A stalemate She there. raised him one, I'd say. <laughs> Eventually, they settled on releasing Portuguese prisoners in
1: exchange for Mbandi being allowed to remain ruler of an independent kingdom.
2: For good measure, Nzinga also converted to Catholicism.
4: Governor de Souza acted as her godfather in this case, and she actually took his name, becoming Dona Ana de Souza. She knew it couldn't hurt to become the Portuguese Christian ally.
3: Exactly. So it sounds like Mbandi would be eternally grateful for his sister for working out this fantastic deal. But the two had a bit of a history of bad blood together. Mbandi himself had killed their father, as well as possibly, different sources say, uh, Nzinga's infant son in order to really consolidate his own power. But before her stint as a negotiator, Nzinga had definitely been reduced to having to flee her own kingdom because of her brother. So things weren't great between them. So maybe it's not a huge surprise that in 1624, Bondi wound up dead under mysterious circumstances. That's the way you see it <laughs> described everywhere. Not quite clear on how, um, how he met his end, but regardless, Nzinga took control after that, despite some major obstacles against her becoming queen.
4: Yep, just to give you an idea of what those obstacles were, uh, hereditary kingship was not 100% set in stone at the time. And even if it was, Nzinga's mother was a slave. Which would have excluded her. That would not have applied to her. And even if that was okay, she was a woman, and that Mbundu specifically did not allow women to rule. So it begins to sound less like a cork of lineage and more like a coup, the fact that she did become the leader. And since her position was so unstable, she really desperately needed the support of the Portuguese to maintain it. So she entered into a deal with them that opened up Umbundu areas to Portuguese slavers. She wanted to become a middleman for slaves, not a source. She also welcomed their missionaries into her capital, which strengthened her base there, and she... By doing that, she also emphasized that she was a Christian ally. She was working emphasized a whole angle that again. Angle. Yep, definitely. But it wasn't long before she was betrayed by the Portuguese. Changing alliances herself, she banded up with the former enemy and Portuguese ally that we talked about before, the Mbangala Warriors, who conveniently enough and unlike her own people had a tradition of centering power on kinless women.
3: And she also got some support from a pretty unexpected source, considering that she uh, was still acting as a middleman for slaves. She sent out a message to escape slaves across the region and even the continent, offering asylum in exchange for loyalty. And so she ultimately transformed herself from a middleman, from a slave provider, to a safe haven for these fiercely loyal escapees, because you can imagine if you finally got somebody who would stick up for you, you would ultimately fight for her. So she further undermined the Portuguese not just by... Collecting these escaped slaves and turning them into her own warriors, but by placing moles in the Portuguese forces. So she knew that the colonizers relied on black soldiers and she'd send out her own guys into their ranks. And then these infiltrators would gradually work their way up and begin to cause trouble, you know, stir things up, encourage desertion. And sometimes whole companies of Portuguese Soldiers would turn tail and join Nzinga, taking, of course, all of their nice Portuguese equipment and gear and weapons with them. But still, in spite of all this, by about 1629, the Portuguese forced Nzinga to
4: abandon Ndongo. She spread rumors that she died and tried to kind of drop off the map at this point. Then suddenly, she popped up again on the outer edges of Mbundu lands in the kingdom of Matamba. Matamba had been left desolate in the first round of the Portuguese in Bengalo raids from the 1620s and left rulerless. Unlike Ndanga, though, Matamba had an ancient tradition of women rulers, and so Nzinga was able to consolidate her power there.
3: And she again offered sanctuary to runaways and formed a new kind of military, one where kids would leave their families and grow up in militia communes, again, a way to inspire this fierce loyalty to her. She'd also, this is another good way to get loyalty, she would use her sisters as warriors and even go into battle herself, dressed in skins and equipped, as we mentioned, with that sword around her neck, an axe in her girdle, and bows and arrows in her hands. So a pretty scary figure in her own right.
4: But her most important initiative in Matamba came in the 1630s when she blocked the main slave trail to the interior, closing down the market, in a sense. She still sold some slaves off herself, but she kept more as mercenaries. So this made Matamba a gateway, not a source for slaves. Which was
3: the ultimate goal in Ndongo from the start. So To control these routes more thoroughly, though, she'd form confederation. She knew that she couldn't defeat all her neighbors. She'd need to work with some of them. So she'd partner up with neighbors like Congo, Dembos, Kisamas, and also started a rebellion in Ndongo, which by this point was controlled by a Portuguese puppet. So her enemy, essentially. She made a new European ally too in the 1640s when the Dutch came into the picture, she figured it was a great way to um, play another European power off of the Portuguese. And, uh, It worked pretty well. The Dutch occupied the Portuguese trading post at Luanda, and by 1648, the Portuguese withdrew. This ended up sort of being the apex of Nzinga's power, though, and she really worked to make sure everybody knew how
1: strong she was. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year
2: She also, at this
4: point, wanted to get around any lingering questions that may be lying around about whether she was actually fit to serve as a woman. So, naturally, she declares herself king. Just avoided the issue entirely that way. Exactly. And this... Kingship of hers came complete with a harem of men. She would dress the men in this harem as women and have them sleep in the same quarters as her ladies in waiting, the same female attendants who doubled as her personal bodyguard, to further bolster her position as a woman
3: leader. She'd promote other ladies to powerful positions in the government and the army. And of course, as we've already mentioned, her sisters out there fighting in the army along with her. But her power still hinged on playing one European power off of another and When the Dutch left the region in 1650, Nzinga was forced to ally herself with her longtime enemy, the Portuguese. She signed a treaty with them in 1656 and promised to deliver a quota of slaves, but also got their assurance that she'd be able to maintain her kingdom's independence and end the war with Ndongo, too, that war that had been going on for so long with the puppet ruler. She reconverted to Christianity, and even though she left no heirs when she died in 1663. Her general started this dynasty of queens who, this is absolutely amazing, they ruled Matamba and Ndongo, which of course did not have that tradition of female rulers, for 80 of the 104 years after her death.
4: The last of those women rulers died in 1767. Matamba wasn't integrated into the Portuguese colony of Angola until. 1909, whereas Ndongo was lost to Angola by the puppet king's son just a few years after Nzinga's death. So it just goes to show what a strong kingdom she built on she her own. She set up there. And according to the Met Museum, which has loads of information on the famous servant chair illustration, Nzinga became a sensation in Europe around the same time after the publication of her biography, Zinga Angola.
3: Yeah, and apparently it was a pretty salacious biography with a lot of exaggerated facts in it, but it really, it made her a popular figure. People were interested in learning more about her. I kept on thinking though, I know we, we don't We don't like to compare people to Western figures all the time. We've talked about that, I think, with Lakshmi Bai. Wasn't she called the Joan of Arc? The Joan of of India. India India's Joan of Arc. But I also think that sometimes it really helps you give a comparison. It helps make sense. Puts it in context. It does. And for this, once I started reading about Nzinga, I couldn't help think of two figures. One was Elizabeth I, and the other was Hatshepsut of Egypt. And she reminded me of Elizabeth because of the obvious struggle she had to overcome about her gender. You know, England was not really cool with a, a female ruler at no, the time. No, they were not. And then objections to her lineage, too. You know, her mother was a slave. And then she reminds me of Elizabeth most, though, because that, that mastering of playing one group off against the other. I mean, it would really take a strong person to be able to do that and not end up losing your kingdom or becoming a, a puppet ruler yourself. She reminded me of Pat Shepset because of uh, her just total decision to avoid the prejudice against queens and rule as a king, I mean, <laughs> complete with this harem of, of men. Um, so I thought that was strange that one person could remind me of two so very different queens.
4: Yeah, but I think that's what makes Nsinga so unique, is that she reminds you of these two people, but she kind of mixes them both totally and then adds in her own thing and is totally different, and maybe actually the perfect Halloween costume. You saw this on a Halloween costume site, right?
3: Yes. It, it was an elaborate costume they had set out for her, so maybe some of y'all, that's one for you to consider.
4: All right, well, I guess we'll have to wait to hear from our listeners then and see if they dress up as her. But speaking of our listeners, it's time to move on to Listener Mail. First, we have this beautiful sunset picture from Guatemala that Ryan sent us. He says, "Uh, I hope you got this postcard that I sent from Germany. I'm from California, but in a Master's of International Nature Conservation Program. And he says that right now he's doing research in the mountains of Guatemala. So thank you, Ryan, for sending us this. It's beautiful. It's a lovely card. We have
3: another postcard from Crispin. And Crispin, your handwriting is like a font almost. It's pretty amazing. So he wrote to us to say that... He loves the podcast and they provide a great deal of entertainment, which is in very short supply when living here in the outback of central Australia. I'm a British guy who decided to abandon the cubicle and spend a few years traveling around the world. I have dropped my backpack to live and work for three months in the village of Eulara, I believe, at Ayers Rock. In April, my time in Australia comes to an end and I will be off to Southeast Asia So, thank you very much. He also suggested that we do an episode on Iris Rock, which would certainly be certainly be interesting. We haven't done Australian history since our our Ned Kelly Bushrangers day. That's true. We
4: kind of had a big dump of Australian history.
3: (laughs) We did. Oh, we had our, our Freedom Riders, too. So, this would probably be some much older history than that. So, thank you to both of you guys for sending such lovely postcards. And I also want to thank my friend Marie Christelle, too, for helping us out with these pronounced we did our best with the M and N sounds. <laughs> I hope we didn't butcher them too badly. Of course, any mistakes are ours and not hers. But thank you again. I really appreciate it. And if any of you guys want to suggest topics, uh, maybe some more African history, we are getting near February, too, and so we'll be covering Black History Month, of course. Uh, please email us. We have a new email address. It is historypodcast@discovery.com. We finally switched domain names to our parent company. We're still at Missed in History on Twitter, and we're still on Facebook, too. Those are both great ways to contact us. And if you want to learn a little bit
4: more about female empowerment, we have a great article called How Feminism Works on our website. You can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
2: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.